0: Welcome to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Rita Issa about why the NHS is going on strike. If you'd like to support Red Medicine, please consider signing up for a £1 a month donation to help cover the costs of running the website. You can also support the podcast by sharing this episode on social media or giving Red Medicine a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Dr. Rita Issa is an NHS GP and research fellow at the UCL Institute for Global Health. She has previously worked as a humanitarian medic for MSF and WHO and has co-founded a number of advocacy and activist organisations campaigning on migrant rights, climate change and health, justice and access. In this episode, we discuss the various pressures faced by healthcare workers in the NHS including austerity, privatisation and poor working conditions and pay. Rita also explains how the COVID-19 pandemic has made all of these things much worse and how workers are organising ahead of unprecedented strike action in an attempt to turn things around for the benefit of workers and patients. I began the conversation by asking her about her experience as a doctor when she first started compared to now.
1: Well, I guess actually, like even before I became a doctor as a medical student, I was pretty concerned already about the direction that the NHS was moving in. And it was partly around this um, bill that was going through Parliament called the Health and Social Care Bill, which is now known as the Health and Social Care Act. And it was essentially like the most extensive reorganisation of the NHS to that point. And it removed responsibility for health from the Secretary of State. And essentially made it a non-democratic role and it had like various other restructurings. And it felt at the time like it was going to be the sort of first step towards, I mean, there'd been many steps towards privatization, but it felt like a major shift in that direction. Me and some friends, and we'd all met during sort of like student occupation. And I think that was like a huge time of radicalization for a lot of, yeah, a lot of like students and young people in the UK. And we set up a group called NHS Direct Action, which was... A sort of play on the, um there used to be this phone line called NHS Direct, which is where you would call for advice. <laughs> and so we tried through this group to do some sort of stunts and awareness raising um around, yeah, this bill that was going through. And it felt at the time like I was screaming into the void. Um, No one really knew about it. If they did know about it, they didn't really care about it. And yeah, I think it's like set in motion what what we have seen since then and actually at the time I mean it's a terrible interview so nobody should go and read it but um, I did I did an interview as a medical student in The Guardian and um, I read back over it recently and I was like wow I actually like predicted some quite right things because actually, even then starting as a junior doctor within the NHS it felt stressful it felt like we were short-staffed it felt like we weren't always able to deliver the optimum level of care that we wanted to. You'd come into shifts and there wouldn't be senior staff there. Um, you know, we're still basically operating on, like, early 2000s, like, computer operating systems, still using bleeps, faxing, you know, all this stuff that just, yeah, wasn't, like, suitable for for healthcare, like, for this decade, you know. And yet, the worst of what we saw then has now become the best of what we have now so the winter pressures that we experienced in 2012 2013 which felt really extreme are now just like a standard summer um in the NHS all of that has been compounded by the fact that there's just been massive staff attrition and sort of understandably so because there's only so much that you can work on goodwill and offer yourself over to work within a system that I guess, doesn't recognise you. And I don't mean that just in terms of financial recognition. There's also just been an erosion of all the other good things that you got from being a healthcare worker, like being able to spend time with patients and feeling um, like you're able to join somebody on a journey, feeling part of a cohesive team, yet feeling like you're contributing to something that's much bigger than yourself. And all of that has also been eroded. And so the NHS isn't right now the most pleasant place to work and that really upsets me because I really fundamentally believe that a sort of socialized public health service is exactly what we need and sort of is what used to set us apart and was something that we could be really proud of in the UK and we are really losing that.
0: And what so what were some of the kind of major things that you successfully predicted in that interview that have kind of come to fruition?
1: So I guess firstly things like staff leaving and we've definitely seen that we're short 50,000 nurses and 12,000 hospital doctors there's sort of reduction in the types of services that are offered and so now for example in the area that I work in there are certain services that just aren't offered on the NHS anymore and like yes they're not major services it'll be things like foot clinic or minor operations but actually if you've Got an ingrown toenail or something wrong with your foot, like you know that that is really annoying. And anybody should be able to access that service on the NHS. And the fact that, you know, you just by virtue of like living somewhere I means that you can't access that service just isn't really fair and isn't really right. And then I guess it's also just seeing that there is more and more private healthcare involvement in the NHS. And I think, you know, because I'm not an economist. And so maybe the way that I view these things is like somewhat simplistic. But to me, it makes sense that if you have like a um a publicly funded um healthcare service, then any of like the profitability, quote unquote profitability within that service just goes back into funding like, you know, public goods. And instead, what we have now is private providers being able to operate within the NHS, and any profit that they draw is money that they're essentially taking from. The government, and that is coming from me and you, and you know, everybody who pays tax, and going into the pockets of shareholders, and that just doesn't really make very much sense to me.
0: I guess one thing as well about the process of privatization in the UK is that it's always been very covert, no right wing, well, no conservative government has ever kind of come out and said, Yes, we're going to privatize the NHS. It's always been cloaked in certain kind of language or in more sort of obtuse language what has the privatization process looked like has there been a kind of weird dissonance between the conversation around the nhs and like your experience of working in it
1: hmm. yeah well i guess like um firstly just to that point it makes complete sense that you know it's never going to be explicitly stated that the nhs is being privatized because the nhs is like the darling of the uk <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, And um, yeah, I don't think people would accept it if it were to be so explicit, but then you just need to look at, you know, at the time of the Health and Social Care Act, looking at like Andrew Lansley, who was passing it through, had um, like personal interests in private healthcare companies, like, you know, financial interests in private healthcare companies. And so that, you know, is somewhat dodgy um, and somewhat corrupt, I guess. But yeah, I I think like parts of the ways that we've practically and like tangibly seen it, you know, it's everything from like very basic stuff, like um, sort of hospital staff being outsourced and being, being taken out of house. So that's everything from like porters, cleaners, uh, canteen staff, for example. And then we're seeing it more and more with like certain services being run by private healthcare providers, um, so certain like imaging services, minor surgeries, certain you know GP services coming in that are run by these like profit, um, yeah, profit creating entities or profit driven entities. And I guess what that essentially means in practice, and this is what I think what what's always been like the great fear is that um, certain people won't be access be able to access the care that they need when they need it because private companies will cream off what is profitable and leave the NHS to pick up the rest yeah and so basically since the summer there's been this new um act that's come through the health and care act and it was yet another sort of reorganization of the NHS and it made these um sort of integrated care systems which are public private partnerships and essentially there's 42 of them across the country they care for about two to three million patients each and they are able to make a profit And so if we think about the way that they do that, as with anything, it's essentially like you cut staff costs, you provide, um, like you employ the cheapest type of staff that you can employ, and then you deny more expensive care. And so that's either just like cutting out certain services completely, or just saying that, you know, you're not going to treat certain individuals because they're high risk or they're too costly. And so that's just come through in the summer. And I guess... waiting to see and all of this is happening in amongst like a massive staffing crisis obviously cost of living crisis coming off the back of the pan well i mean still in the in the pandemic but coming off the back of like the intensity of of the COVID pandemic um just how um sort of like absolutely exhausted and um underappreciated everyone is feeling actually And so I, you know, my my fear is like I wonder how much fight there is left within people, Um, and to what extent there is just like a resignation, you know, that you know we're we're too far gone, Um, and so there's just an accepting that this is the way that the NHS that the NHS is moving.
0: And just talking about COVID, there, like, what was your experience of working through COVID? Like, how did that crisis sort of compound? a lot of the problems that were already being caused by um austerity
1: i mean i guess it's like so multifactorial yeah Um, maybe if i just like focus i guess like specifically on the healthcare system itself even though knowing that like obviously health and healthcare is just like determined by so many other things yeah i mean we went into covid with massive waiting lists and now those waiting lists are just you know, seven million people sitting on a waiting list, and that's really, really challenging for me as a GP because somebody will come and see me, and they'll say, "You know, I've been waiting for this appointment for six months or whatever," and it might be something that's like beyond my capacities to be able to treat. They might need some surgery, they might need some ultra specialist medication or specific types of investigations that I'm just not able to do in general practice. And that's really disheartening for me to be able to say, "Well, I'm not really i i I will do what I can or write to hospital," but people are just waiting and staying at home in pain and discomfort and it makes like no sense in terms of empathy but it also makes no sense sort of economically and in terms of like maintaining a healthy workforce you know if we want to think about it in those terms and I I guess maybe just the other thing to mention which for me working like mostly in primary care during the pandemic I was like somewhat protected from but I know that yeah for a lot of my friends and colleagues who are working in hospital There's also just a huge amount of um, trauma and exhaustion that they're carrying. You know, it's horrendous (laughs) to be with people in, yeah, I I don't want to be graphic about it, but just like in really, really difficult times and lots of people dying and not being able to do anything about it. Um, And that is being held by a lot of the healthcare and care workforce. And there doesn't really seem to be a sort of collective recognition of that yeah um i can sort of understand how in everyone's like desire to just you know move on and get back to quote unquote normal as quickly as possible it's just like we've all just completely like for i don't know 95 percent of people something it's just like shifting into completely feeling like the pandemic didn't happen just like choosing having collective amnesia around it and i sort of get that because it was a really really challenging and hard time for many people not least like the people who are still having to live with the consequences of it now but it also means that we haven't had like a collective um, grieving or acknowledgement of of the trauma that many people have had to go through um yeah and I think it's weighing heavily on on lots of people really
0: yeah I mean it's interesting that you say that you're kind of concerned about how much fight there is left and that there's a kind of sense of resignation because part of the reason why I'm going to speak to you is about the upcoming strikes and what what feels like you know maybe from the outside seems actually like there is quite a lot of fight or you know the RNC calling for a a nationwide strike of nurses for the first time in their history that seems like a really historically significant moment I mean for people that don't know, could you kind of just give an overview of like what's going on there and the significance of um, these kind of upcoming strikes?
1: Yeah, for sure. And actually, as I said that the thing about resignation before, I was like, but remember, you have to talk about the strikes.
0: <laughs>
1: so for those who don't know, nurses have balloted for strike action and the ballot and results were announced um, just on the 9th of November, um, which has confirmed that there's going to be a sort of as close as possible to a nationwide uh, nurse's strike, which is sort of unprecedented actually. And I think that just speaks to the level of sort of frustration that's felt within the profession and junior doctors. So that's all doctors basically up to GP or consultant level, but that can be doctors who are like 10, 15 years out of training. So it's quite, it makes up quite a significant portion of the the sort of doctor workforce are balloting for strike action in january and strike action is primarily around pay and this idea of pay restoration so bringing pay up to sort of fair levels in real terms and just maybe a word on healthcare worker strike action um because usually like and i'm sure we're going to see this in the media there's often a sort of pushback saying that um health professionals going on strike is going to cause risk to patients but um, one of my colleagues, Ryan Essex, who is a really brilliant academic and does lots of work around healthcare worker activism, has done a big research study, which basically shows that there's no increase in patient um, sort of death or harm during periods of strike action. And part of the reason that that happens is because um, there's a sort of minimum service level agreement that's put in place. So there will still be staff who are on and they're not just people who are crossing the picket line. You know, we we commit to providing A minimum level of care, and that's somewhat equivalent to what you might get on a weekend or on a bank bank holiday. So we acknowledge there are other times of the year when there are that many people working, and that's something that is just like generally um, accepted. And so that's the sort of level that we'll be working at during the strikes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I want to come back to the technical side of like what it means for hospital workers to go on strike, but I just wanted to go back briefly to like what we were saying about resignation because you know it's obviously something that's felt throughout the NHS but it's like more and more so a sense of resignation that has felt like throughout like so many people's lives at the minute and i guess what's interesting is when the process of politicization can transform that sense of resignation into something kind of productive that transforms that feeling for the people involved i mean i just wanted to ask you if you like how you've observed or if you've observed the kind of politicisation of that feeling kind of recently in a, in like a different way or in a kind of noticeably more common way, like are people able to find political articulations of that feeling more so in the past, maybe?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's, it's challenging, obviously, because, you know, it's a very like heterogeneous workforce. And yeah. so it's going... For different people, I think one of the challenges that I have with the British Medical Association, um, of which I used to be a national rep, so um, (laughs) I've been deep in the belly of the beast. But um, a lot of the communication now around, you know, this potential upcoming strike, is very much focused on doctors' pay. And yes, I understand that you know per hour, given how many hours junior doctors are working, pay isn't particularly high. And we are in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis and the pay hasn't, you know, risen. You know, junior doctors now earn pretty much exactly the same as what they earned in the year 2000, but obviously there's been, like, huge inflation. So, you know, it hasn't really gone up. But also within the NHS, junior doctors still earn very well comparatively. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really seeing a super strong sense of, like, cross-sectoral solidarity both within the NHS and across to other other striking workers and I wonder whether that's because there's been some like testing done and you know this is what you know this messaging you know we want to be really clear on our messaging and we're just going to say that it's about junior doctors pay or actually whether whether this is recognized as being part of like a wider sort of political direction and motive and actually for me I think it's more powerful to really speak to how all of this is interlinked and actually like junior doctors not being paid fairly, links into the fact that we have 7 million people on hospital waiting lists, links into the fact that we're having privatisation within the NHS, that we have outsourced workers, that we have people on zero hours contracts, links into the fact that nurses are, are resorting to using food banks, you know, all of that is so interconnected. And I see that there's really like a stronger call and a stronger need for Doctors especially who have this um, uh, relative like positionality of being regarded in like a different way, but also often coming from like a different class background to really think about how they use relative power that they have to um, really yet yeah, call for better conditions for everybody, both workers and also patients
0: yeah, I was just I mean, I, I obviously reached out after I saw you speak at on the picket line at the Enough is Enough rally at King's Cross station on October first. And the success of that campaign seems to be in its attempt to draw together all these different strikes, all these different struggles into a broader kind of political demand. and interestingly, it also kind of plays on this idea or draws on this desire, I suppose, for kind of dignity in work and a kind of fair appreciation for work. Mm. And I guess I was just wondering, maybe you could speak a little bit about Enough is Enough and kind of how you see this, you know, the, the strike action in the NHS kind of feeding into and kind of building with or building on other things that are happening, like, you know, the kind of broader sense of, yeah, maybe that sense of resignation that's building kind of across country, like how does it relate to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there's just <laughs> people who can give like a far more nuanced like, political analysis of it, but it has been sort of incredible seeing this wave of strike action across rail service, legal system, postal workers, education, telecommunications, like all of it. And then to know that um, healthcare workers are joining that tide feels really, really important. And yeah, I, I really, like, I really feel it viscerally that it is about a matter of dignity, because, you know, it's just remembering that it is workers who prop this country up. And actually, it's, it's many of these workers who are going on strike, who have propped this country up during a sort of terrible three years of pandemic. And there seems to be sort of no recognition and no reward. And instead, of what people are facing is like, the possibility of not being able to heat their homes of not being able to eat properly, of not, you know, knowing how they're going to pay their bills. And that, you know, I think it just speaks to a fundamental, like, unfairness, especially knowing how much the people at the top are creaming away off the backs of the labour of others.
0: I mean, just as you seeing then, I was thinking about, you know, does, does that sense of, like, a broader movement help a little bit in combating that right-wing frame you were talking about, about, you know, if NHS workers go on strike, you know, X, Y, Z, bad thing will happen. I mean, is it easier to articulate the importance of a strike amongst other struggles instead of just, you know, in one particular field?
1: I think what I'm interested to see is how the media respond to striking nurses, especially, because nurses are really respected and really loved, and everybody knows that nurses just work really hard and give so much of their hearts and just go above and beyond um, because so much of what they offer is, you know, it can't be quantified in, it, yeah, it can't be quantified. It's just this like, it's just like what's necessary when you're experiencing, you know, pain and suffering. And I think that there will be, yeah, something interesting in seeing how um, nurses on strike are framed within the context of other workers going on strike, whether all workers will be like sort of pitted together um, or pitted against each other or whether some sort of like hierarchy might arise and I think that there is which is why you know there's real value in the enough is enough campaign to support cohesive messaging across all these different striking workers and making sure that there is um, a sort of unified voice that's calling for similar demands I guess.
0: Yeah let's th- let's stay with that kind of question of framing actually because um, having read some interviews with nurses and other kind of healthcare workers what seems to be really important about these strikes is that actually many healthcare workers see their strike see the strike and see their kind of activism as an extension of their commitment to patients and I'm expecting that or what what tends to happen is the right wing press will present it as somehow detrimental to patients you know as you've already pointed out I mean could could you speak to that kind of that feeling that actually striking is, is part of healthcare workers commitment to making sure patients get taken care of as much as healthcare workers receive, you know, fair pay and kind of recognition for all they've done.
1: Yeah, I think this is like a really crucial and very interesting point. Um, and I think actually, like, so much of it is bound to, like, how we conceptualise risk and over what sort of time frame. because, yes, it's, Annoying if you are a patient on the day that people are on strike and you might have to wait for a few more hours to be seen, whatever else. But we also currently have a thousand excess deaths a month in the NHS purely because of AE waiting times.
0: Mm.
1: And those are figures and those are people that you're not seeing. And those yeah. are figures and people that the media isn't reporting on. But Sure as hell, they're going to find that one story of the person who's been inconvenienced by um, a train strike or a nurses' strike, and that is going to be the reason why we shouldn't be acting for the greater good. And the way that I see it is that you know within um the General Medical Council's duties of a doctor uh, document, it talks about the needs to protect patients from harm, to act in a timely way when you think patient um, safety might be compromised and all of that to me speaks to the need of the need to act on I guess like what are some of the upstream determinants of health so if that is unsafe staffing levels then you need to act on that if that is um, yeah a health system or health service that's not providing um, care in a timely manner then you need to act on that because that is causing patient harm and so I do see it as Part of of the duties as a doctor. And we've had this come up quite a bit, especially around doctors taking action on climate change as well. Because, you know, there's this idea of like, why should doctors act on this thing? How is it really related? Why aren't you just going like doing your jobs? There's so many, you know, we're short, so many members of staff just doing work every single day. And actually, it's like 200 people a day are dying from the effects of air pollution Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in the UK which is like the same as a double-decker bus. And if a double-decker bus was like crashing every day, we'd be taking action on that. But because there are these things that just sort of like not like tangibly measured and reported on, it seems like striking or protesting is extreme when actually I just don't think it's extreme at all. I think it's just an extension of of doing our work and doing it well.
0: Yeah, definitely. The final thing I'll ask you about kind of strike stuff is, you know, maybe a bit of a simple question, but like for people that aren't healthcare workers or people that aren't unionized workers or necessarily striking, like how can people show solidarity with the strikes and you know help make sure that they're successful?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um so I guess um one thing that everybody can do is just to help counter the narrative that I'm sure is going to emerge in the media around um healthcare workers striking. And so it's just um, speaking to sort of like friends, colleagues, family members, and just explaining what is going on in the NHS. I also just within actually that context want to acknowledge that the NHS isn't working for patients right now. And so I understand that there is a whole lot of frustration there. And I think rightly so, but it's also for patients and members of the public and everybody to care about what is happening with the NHS. To think about how you can continue to support a uh, sort of publicly funded and socialized healthcare system, and then also I'm sure that as we get nearer to the dates of the strikes, there is going to be um, various like strike funds being set up and whatever else. So I would check in, you know, on the RCN and on the BMA sites and just just read up about um, how you might be able to contribute in that way.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like so many of the conversations we have around the NHS are you know, by virtue of the situation we're in, quite defensive and quite negative. You know, we're on the back foot and we're trying to prevent bad things happening. We're trying to prevent privatisation. We're trying to prevent cuts. But I think it's also really important to kind of articulate um, a kind of positive, expansive vision of the NHS and, and, you know, how it could go further, how socialised medicine could go even further in kind of improving, you know, all of our lives. Um, And I also know that you've got this background with your training at the Bromley-By-Beau Bow center which kind of takes this approach from kind of thinking about social determinants of health. And I was wondering how you think about that more expansive idea of what the NHS could be, you know, what, what healthcare could be doing moving forward, hopefully winning these struggles and kind of going even further.
1: Yeah. Thanks. That's like a really um, beautiful question and beautiful framing. And maybe just to give a bit of background. So yeah, I, I did my training at and currently Work at a place called the Bromley Bibo Center, which was the first place to start this thing called social prescribing. And so social prescribing is based on the social determinants of health. And what the social determinants of health um essentially outline is that um health isn't just, or ill health isn't just caused by sort of pathogens and your genetics, and maybe your sort of like immediate factors. It's also caused by a whole host of other things, things which might be very close to you, like um. The air that you breathe, the house you brought up in, the family that you're brought up in, you know, your class, your religion. And then there's like other sort of more distal factors like the country that you're born in, like your the politics, um, economy, and then you know, factors that we're becoming increasingly, increasingly more aware of. So things like climate change. And thinking about health through this broader lens, it has um us as people, you know, in the business of Um, improving health, thinking about, okay, at what point can we intervene to make sure that people live as healthy and as good lives as possible. And I think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of the, um, quote unquote, health care that we provide is actually disease care. We are treating people once they have an illness, and we get people back to the lowest possible baseline that we're really able to. And for many people that that means living with, you know, um, chronic conditions, medication dependency, maybe in pain, um, not really like flourishing, but managing. And um, so one of the questions that I'm interested in is like, what would a healthcare system, like a true healthcare system look like? Like, what does health really mean? The World Health Organization defines it as being a state of going to try and say this off the top of my head uh a state of complete mental physical and social well-being i think it's something like that and you know healthcare services right now don't really provide that or get anywhere near to that but um at the bromley Bibo center that is something that we are trying and have been for the last 40 years um been trying to um sort of embed within the space and so We have a GP practice, but it's linked to a community center. And um, there's a neighboring park and we've got a vegetable garden and a walking club and people learning English as a foreign language and people with disabilities being trained up to get a catering qualification and, you know, resident artists and all these things. And what it means for me as a GP is that if somebody comes to see me and they have asthma and I work out that the asthma is because of their damp housing I can, yes, prescribe them an asthma inhaler, but I can also say to them, oh, hey, do you want to go and speak to our housing advisor? And maybe they'll be able to help deal with the sort of underlying cause of why you have this illness in the first place. And so we have this sort of integrated service where I, as a GP, and also our receptionists are able to do this too. And people can also self-refer, um, you know, can go and see a social prescriber who will take a more holistic view of their lives and say okay well maybe you can try like this club or this group or join the walking group or you know go and put your hands in the soil and do some vegetable planting and maybe that will improve um you know all these various factors in your life and it is uh wonderful (laughs) (laughs) it's really nice to walk into the practice because it's in a very sort of polluted area like just off the massive main road that's heading into the black hole tunnel Mm -hmm. um it's an area with um very high rates of poverty um high rates deprivation but you walk in and it's green and there's you know water features and artwork and um lots of people around who can provide sort of mutual support and solidarity that's really really great i think for me though if i was to imagine what an ultimate healthcare service would look like. Ideally, I would want it where it wouldn't need to be me as a healthcare professional or even anyone within a health setting to have to be the gatekeeper to being able to access those services. Those would be services that are held as sort of like community knowledge and community wealth. And, you know, people would just be able to access them and be able to access them earlier, not when they become unwell, but... That would just be such an embedded part of the way that you live your life that actually we're able to live as well and in like you know know, so that people can live um, well and live like flourishing lives before they become ill in the first place. You know that would be, I guess, a more ideal model for me.
0: Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Rita for such an enjoyable conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to stay up to date with Red Medicine, you might like to follow the podcast on Twitter at red underscore medicine underscore underscore or sign up for the monthly newsletter at www.redmedicine.xyz forward slash supplement. Thanks again for listening.